Welcome to P.S. Blossom, a podcast series driven by purpose and the belief that each of us has the power to transform the world for the better. We are here to be a catalyst for activism. We believe in empowering individuals and powers communities. We also recognize that unless we engage in the issues of race, gender, and class within reproductive and maternal health, we cannot be a part of the solution. Our goal with P.S. Blossom is to empower all women, especially Black, Indigenous, and women of color, to advocate for their health care their way. These are conversations creating change. Please be sure to like, subscribe, leave comments, and share. Hello, everyone. Welcome to part two of Parenting and the Dominant Narrative. Last time, we spoke about the rights of teen parents and how the reproductive justice movement started. Anna shared a huge win and emphasized the importance of acknowledging the horror and violence that happened during California's eugenics law. Listen in as she dives into the challenges immigrant Latina and migrant indigenous women face in tackling the systems that are set in place to do what they do. You brought up two things that I would like you to define for people. You said people are assuming that migrant indigenous coming from Guatemala, Mexico, are automatically Latina or Latino. Can you define, just to make sure that people have a very clear idea of what you're saying, what migrant indigenous and what immigrant Latino, Latinx, and Latinas are? So that is such a hard question because I think people will define those very differently. And thank you for actually asking that clarifying question because where, what is often missed is that those indigenous communities do not identify as Latino, Latina. That's not the race category that they identify with. We're talking about communities that predate borders and yeah. predate this category of what it means to be Latino. They will go further and say, that they are Mixteco or Zapotec or Mayan mm-hmm. or Quiche. So then that also complicates matters because even by saying indigenous communities, I don't want to leave people th- with this impression that it is a monolith because mm-hmm. even within the indigenous communities, there's a lot of different communities with different languages. That's what's so, so critical is that you have communities with a whole, you know, different system, with, with a whole different language, with a whole different culture. And so by not acknowledging those differences and then categorizing them as Latino because they were born in a particular region, then you're completely erasing and invisibilizing whole, whole communities. For us, we definitely work in partnership with Indigenous-led communities to better understand how we, as the Latina RJ Oregon, California, cannot contribute to that invisibilization, right? Yes, it, when you were saying that, it reminded me of the maternal mortality and morbidity rates and how it was just women of color before they started to break the statistics apart and not view everyone as one person between Black and Hispanic, between API. And so it's 
this assumption around monoliths, I feel like it's a conversation on its own. So as you were speaking to that, the question that came up is because of the communities within this community of migrant indigenous and then immigrant Latinas, there have to be a whole host of reproductive challenges that they're facing. Can you speak to some of the biggest ones? Yes. So one of the biggest things that I try to lead off when we engage in this discussion is ensuring that whatever policy we pass, and, and I'm going to talk about California specifically because I think we have a little more control about our state policies and laws, is ensuring that we are not leaving out immigrant communities because of their documentation status. If that makes sense, what I want to say. So if we are going to open up and expand medical access, for example, or reproductive care or, or rental assistance, because we know that's something that a lot of folks are facing right now, we cannot be continuously icing out or leaving out whole communities based on their documentation status. I can't emphasize enough like how incredibly hard that is to celebrate a win or celebrate an expansion to healthcare when not everyone was included in that. Again, because of documentation status, that is one of the biggest hurdles that we face. Access to abortion, if you need assistance like monetary assistance and you need Medi-Cal to pay for it, it will cover abortion care regardless of immigration status. That's one example that I always give. Abortion is incredibly a critical component of reproductive health care. But in other ways, like the rental assistance, it's only a small part of money was reserved for folks who were undocumented. The stimulus money that we talk about federally, it completely iced out folks that are undocumented. In my understanding, in mixed families where you might have some folks that are documented and some folks that are not, there were challenges and also accessing that support. And so we need to start there. We need to start really big because again, if you don't think a person is worthy of being included in these types of policies, then of course you're going to question their worthiness around their reproductive capacity. This is how we get into the slippery slope of institutions and individuals deciding like who is fit to be a parent and who has the right of, of their reproductive capacity to be respected. It's all connected. That thread is always there in all of these policies. You deeming someone not worthy of healthcare or worthy of a certain assistance, it's going to lead to you not leaving them worthy of having their rights respected, their bodily autonomy respected. The other component that a lot of immigrant communities face is just the incredible lack of clear information as to what it is that they are able to access because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to like federal. This is what the federal policy says versus every state has its own policies and laws. Then being able to access reliable information can become really challenging. And again, that fear of accessing services in general, because you may not want to be part of a system. We know that there's a lot of states, for example, that if you do get care in a facility, that there's record keeping. And we do know situations where those facilities turn over that information to law enforcement. So you'd make it incredibly hard for people to really get the care that they need. 
California doesn't necessarily have that. We are allegedly a sanctuary state. I question how enforceable that is in certain parts of the state where immigrants are not seen as welcome. Not every corner of our state welcomes immigrants and thinks that immigrants should be here. So you just spoke to things that I want to bring up, like having access to care. And then there's the fear that's associated with it because you have groups like ICE. And how do you approach the fear that comes with access to care and being a mixed family that part of the family may be undocumented or just uh, a family that's undocumented, period. How would you have people approach this in a way that's ensuring that they're getting the care that they need? So I I think the other part of being in reproductive justice organization, I really need to emphasize this point, is, is cross movement building, is partnering up across different movements because we're small. We don't exactly have the capacity to delve into many issues very deeply, but this is where being in coalition or being in alliance with other organizations is really critical. For example, we work very closely with immigrant rights organizations, and so we follow their lead in terms of what is happening, the state level or the federal level. And then in turn, we share out whatever materials they have How do we reimagine or how do we reframe this narrative? And how would you like to see it reframed? That's such a hard one, right? Because we have to acknowledge that there is a lot of inequity in this country. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of worry, a lot of uncertainty, which leads to a lot of stress. And oftentimes it gets channeled into immigrant and migrant communities because they're the ones that get blamed for stealing jobs or being a drain on resources. Bringing in pathogens, bringing in coronavirus, there has to be a recognition because it's inequity, that fear, that uncertainty, like that's real. Rather than talking about systems, talking about stagnant wages, talking about how corporations are paying their fair share of taxes, Talking about white supremacy, it's very easy to then turn, say, a group of people that are too late. This is why you're living in poverty and this is why we're all sick. For us, it's not just pushing back, talking about how immigrant communities are actually a fabric of a lot of our communities and not an other. They go to our schools, they are our neighbors, they work in, in different industries that may benefit you. There's that facet of really humanizing. Like, who are these immigrants that we're talking about? Your neighbor, the person that you go to church with, the person that your kids go to school with. It's just really humanizing who we're talking about in a way that makes those connections because I don't see how we're not going to keep up placing blame on this community if we don't really tackle what those systems were set in place to do. This was a very purposeful way of organizing our society and the role that capitalism plays. And I know that these words get thrown out and we talk about dismantling capitalism and dismantling white supremacy, but tackling those big issues is what's really going to help 
was then moving away from constant blaming and discrimination and overt racism. We can reimagine something different. But until we really get to that root stuff, we're not going to make a lot of inroads with ensuring that you know, communities don't get discriminated against. It's such a big task. Like it feels so insurmountable and it feels so big. But I think this is why viewing these issues within that RJ framework is so important. Building movements, showing up for each other is so important. Understanding the different struggles and the commonality in those struggles that surpass different identities because at the crux of it, we're being oppressed by the same systems. That's where we really make changes. And so it feels big, but I also feel like in a lot of ways, we have been moving towards that coalescing a bit more. And so that's what keeps me hopeful. I love the hope. So in speaking of hope, and I know we're coming to the end of this, how can we put hope back into the community? What does investment into these communities and investment in hope within these communities look like? I think I'm also really hopeful because I've seen different examples that we've talked about. So with working with the young parents, we worked with different cohorts. Some of them we worked for a year, some of them we worked a little bit longer. And so we definitely saw that change in themselves, like where before they were really quick to accept the narrative or the story that was being told about them. Towards the end of it, they were a lot more assertive, they were a lot more confident, and they were a lot more equipped to call out school officials if they felt like they were violating like Title IX laws, for example, and just really standing up for themselves. That could be such a small example, but I also think about the ramifications of those young people and how they carry themselves and assert themselves in other spaces. Maybe they influence other young parents that came after them. Maybe their family members, maybe their community members. I kind of see that um, amplifying, if that makes sense, that hope and that difference in looking at, at their situation and what is possible. I also think about our recent win and we talked about the monetary compensation for folks who were sterilized by the state. And I also think about some of the hope that they had that this actually passed. This is like decades and decades of work because it wasn't just for years. It was all the work that came before to really make a case as to what had happened and that something did happen. And so what are we going to do about it and how are we going to acknowledge that harm? And so hearing the survivors talk about relief and hope, and there is some semblance of justice being served here, I think also is really helpful in, in understanding that, yes, sometimes those wins are not as often as we want them. And sometimes they're not as complete as we want them. Sometimes we have to compromise on things, but we do have those wins. And so how can we catapult from that win? use it as a springboard into other instances of forced sterilization. So we're talking about state-sponsored. Now there's conversations about looking at county-sponsored sterilizations. And I don't think we would be in a place of maybe talking about that had this win not happened. And so 
I think it's really important to celebrate those wins, to acknowledge the incredible work that went into it and what came out of it. And then that feeds into that hope, right? Into other issues that we're talking about. And then to address your question about investment, I mean, I am so thankful to the Black Lives Matter movement for many reasons, but one of them is it clicked for me when calling out defunding the police, what they were doing is they were talking about how much resource actually goes into the system, into law enforcement, and really itemizing those numbers, you know, talking about millions of dollars, talking about 50% of a city's budget, really putting it in those terms, and then pivoting and saying, now imagine what we can do with these millions of dollars if it was actually invested in community. If 50% of the budget actually went into the services that community needs. Pivoting into like the possibilities, the hope. And again, culture shift. How differently society can be structured if we were just to move the money around and really put it where it needs to go. And how can you argue against that? You have a finite amount of resources. As a local entity state, you can decide what to do with that money. Okay, so we've come to our final three questions. Can you share first your three go-to resources for when you want information so that our community can get more information around these issues? Yes. So I, my go-to organizations are other RJ orgs. So here in LA, it's Black Women for Wellness. We call them our, our sister RJ org. And so they work on issues specifically impacting Black women and girls. They're also statewide, but they're also based in LA. And they're doing incredible work. And they recently become a C4. C3 is a nonprofit organization and a C4 can do a little bit more lobbying. Also, I look to Sister Song, which is diving deeper into the history of RJ and then really just understanding the different issue areas under the RJ umbrella. I really like looking at Sister Song because as a national org, you also get to see what's going on in different parts of the country. And so I love collecting data and stuff like that. And so one of my favorite organizations is IBIS Reproductive Health. They do a lot of domestic work here in the U.S., but they also do global work around reproductive health care. And so I really like going through their different research um, studies. And so off the top of my head, those are the orgs that I go to. Lovely. So... Where can we find you online? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So I personally don't have a big social media presence, though I do have a Twitter account. So it's my first name, Anna underscore Suset, at Anna underscore. My organization, CLRJ, is very active on social media. And so you can find us at Latinas for RJ. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now we're opening up a TikTok account, apparently. So that's going to be fun. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. So my final question, 
And I normally give the preface, but this time I'm just going to call it the marble question with an additional piece to it. How do you want to use the power that you have to make a difference, whether now or in the future? And what type of impact do you want to leave on the world? When people ask, if you had a superpower, what would it be? I've always said I would want to be able to speak and understand any language in any corner of the world in order to be able to communicate and to order and in here, because a lot gets lost in translation. For me, I am doing some of that translation, whether we're talking about how policies actually translate on the ground, literal translation from English to Spanish, research studies that I, I question and push back on and I'm like, what was the sample and who collected this data? And why are we emphasizing these findings? And then creating a, a fact sheet of my own that actually focuses on things that are more important to highlight that would mean more important to my community. For the last 13 years that I've been with CLRJ, I was the director of research here. And so that was my job, really translating some of that data and what does it mean? And really thinking about what other questions can we be asking instead and why are we spending so much time focusing on these? I guess the impact that I want to leave is that I want people to feel that they are able to have a full picture of what that information is for them. And then based on that, being able to decide for themselves what is the next course of action. I don't want to be where things get lost in translation. I don't want it to be where there's hidden agendas because certain people think that you should act a certain way or, or choose a certain path. Really ensuring that in, in all the work that we do, that we are creating as much as we can, that full breadth of information. And that's at the crux of it. Going back to what RJ really means is being able to decide for yourself, having that bodily autonomy respected. And the only way you can really do that is if you feel like you are making decisions of your own accord with all the information that, that is available to you. And so I think a lot about how my big superpower might get translated into into the day-to-day -day work that I do here at CLRJ. And so, yeah, I hope to leave. I hope to leave that. I love that. Not even the middleman, you're the ultimate translator between <laughs> everyone. <laughs> oh, man. That's like a grand dream stage and movement, I think, a purpose. So I love that. Okay. Well, Anna, do you have any last words that you want to leave with us as we conclude this week's episode? I just wanted to express my deep gratitude for this conversation, for talking about these different issues or different community members. And I really appreciated this conversation. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for being here. And you have shared so much. I feel like people are only going to have more questions so that they can learn more. So thank you for sharing. And on this note, we are concluding this week's episode of PS Blossom. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you to Anna again for bringing this conversation to light for issues and topics that can be isolating and challenging and feel like you're battling them alone. Reach out to Anna online if you have any questions or you can tag PS Blossom on Twitter or Instagram. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share. Thank you for listening.